This is Big Adventures. I'm Brian Durker. Hey, you know, communities are so lucky when they have somebody like Walt Taylor that's kept an eye on them as a medical doctor and friend. And he has cut a wide swath of helping people in this community. And he also started early running rivers and his kids all run rivers and adventure and a fantastic Taylor clan that he's got in town. And uh, we're all real lucky to have him sit in with us and give a little bit of his story, a little bit of his adventures. And so settle in. Big Adventures with Walt Taylor. You know, Walt, you and I go way back. Don't, uh, don't tell me my troubles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been really excited to sit and talk with you because we have a lot of great history with each other. And I've always been proud to be a good friend of yours. And I, I'm sure you've been thrilled to be my friend. Yes, that's true. It's got to be. But... uh you know, I'd be really interested in just hearing about your early days. Um, I know there's the Elkhorn that's involved with that, but uh, just like, can we talk about uh, where you were born and, you know, your early childhood? And can, can you share with us a little bit about your, the early Walt? Sure. Um, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. My dad worked for a steel company. He was a salesman. And my mother uh, was mostly a stay-at-home mom, although later in her life she did a uh, cosmetic thing where she'd go and sell sell things to people. But we grew up uh, in a wonderful setting, uh, kind of out in the country, about five miles from town uh, in southern Michigan, about 20 miles north of Detroit. And it was woods around there and abandoned apple orchard and... Oh, most of the people had five-acre lots, probably. and But it was kind of paradise for a, a young boy growing up to just... Kind wander. of a rural country sort of setting. Yeah, yeah, to wander around in the woods and uh, just to enjoy the outdoors. And uh, my brother was three years older than me, and uh, we, we just ran wild in the woods there. And uh, about... When I was about 18, um, our dog disappeared, which was kind of a big event. I was so attached to the dog that... Oh, yeah, that's, if, a, tr if, that's if, a drama there. If it hadn't disappeared, I probably wouldn't have wanted to go off to college. <laughs> but as it was, uh, I went to college. Uh, I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, mainly because I had seen a magazine called Open Road for Boys that talked about the Dartmouth Outing Club and all the outdoor stuff they had going on, skiing and hiking and all that. And I'd never been to the place, of course, but that's where I wanted to go. So I got in and uh, I played freshman football, but wasn't very good. So there, that wasn't going to keep going. Um, but that spring break of my freshman year, my parents took me to the Elkhorn Ranch uh, southwest of Tucson, uh, the guest ranch that they had been to. And I loved it there. I'd had various uh, camp and horse experiences in my life, so I'd, I loved being at the ranch. And at the end of our two-week stay there, I asked the, the boss named Bob Miller, I asked Bob for a job at their Montana ranch. The Elkhorn is one of the first of the old-time dude ranches, and, with, and they had one ranch in, uh, near Bozeman, Montana, on the Gallatin River, and another one in southwest of Tucson. And Bob uh, gave me a job at the, at the Montana ranch for the summer. So I was in heaven. Uh, I went there and just loved it and uh, went back to Dartmouth for my second year. And uh, that was fine. I liked Dartmouth. It was good. Went back to the ranch again that next year. And I got to do a little more. 
I never considered myself a real genuine cowboy because I didn't know how to shoe a horse or that sort of thing. But I took rides out and tailed other rides and I got to go on pack trips into Yellowstone Park uh, as a helper. Well, that must have been and, fantastic. Uh, what a wonderful. place. Huh? Yeah, I was exposed <clears throat> to some old time cowboys that worked at the ranch, which was fun. And uh, just had a lot of good friends. And uh, and just for the listener, Bob, uh, Bob Miller, uh, who I was lucky enough to become friends with through through Walt, was a hell of a cowboy. He was the real deal cowboy. He sure was. He was a hell of a man. Yep. He was a great person. He changed my life. Anyhow, after that second year at the Elkhorn, um, I went through what I call my young life crisis, but it wasn't a crisis. It was all a good thing. I decided to leave Dartmouth and uh, transfer to Montana State in Bozeman. At the time, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but uh, I did know that I loved being at the ranch ranch in Montana. And it was a kind of a hard time for my parents. as I mentioned before, they set great store by education, and but um, my dad lost his job at that point. He was in his high 50s, and uh, due to a shakeup in the company he worked for, uh, he got canned, and uh, we were not poor enough to get a scholarship then and not rich enough to make it easy, so I that was a another reason that it went into my changing schools. And also, um, I just loved being at the ranch and uh, sort of being in charge of myself and all that. And uh, had good teachers at Montana State, and I actually probably learned as much or more at Montana State than I did at Dartmouth, even though Dartmouth was more prestigious, you might say. Hootie-tootie, yeah. Yeah. Um, so after the, the next year, I went back to the ranch again for my third summer there and just had another great time. And a lot of the guests were really interesting, neat people. They came from all over the place. One of them in particular, I have a soft spot in my heart for was a man named Edward Streeter. He had, he was a stockbroker in New York, but he also had written, uh, some plays, and he, there's a, a, a story called uh, "Father of the Bride" that became a movie, and he, he had written that. Oh wow! And he, uh, he, he talked to me a lot about uh, I, what I was going to do or what I had been doing, and he kind of uh, gave me a chance to to talk, and uh, he, he encouraged me to follow my heart and uh, do various things that it would work out okay, and, and, and it did. And I've always been grateful to him for being an understanding voice. Um, Pro- yeah, probably with the, with the dude business or the, the type operation, and Bob always pointed this out, is the similarity to a, a river trip, you know, as far as the crew and is taking care of these people that are uh, a little out of their element and stuff. That must've been a really cool job. It it was. And I was by the third summer there, I was one of the regular, you know, cowboys down at the barn. And uh, it was, it was really good. Spitting and drinking whiskey and fist fighting. (laughs) Well, not very often. (laughs) (laughs) Only when you had to. And uh, (laughs) anyhow, um, in that last year of college at Montana State, and I'll try to make this brief, um, getting ready to go, getting ready to study for finals just before Christmas time. And uh, this is another really interesting story, but I'll make it brief. No, let's, let's I, have it. I took a break from studying for an exam and wandered into the stacks of the library at Montana State. And I just was standing there taking a break, and I pulled out a book off the shelf called The Operation. And it was written about one of the first heart-lung machine operations in the University of Minnesota. This was all when artificial, that that stuff was all being developed and was brand new. And it followed the course of a five-year-old boy 
who was born with a heart defect and how they evaluated him and what they did and how it turned out and all that. And it was fascinating. So I went home for Christmas. and uh, I'd only gotten halfway through the book standing there in the, in the sacks in Montana, but I went home and got it out of the library there and finished the book. And I didn't want to be a, a heart surgeon, but I did like the idea of maybe being a family doctor. And there was a doctor who lived down the road from us who uh, had been a big uh, role model for me in a way, uh, not as a doctor, but just as a person. I'd worked for them, and anyhow, he was a really important person in my mind. And uh, I talked to him about it, and he said I could come down to his office and watch him do stuff. And to make a long story short, I went back to Montana, and I took the MCAT exam. I don't know how I did it, but I must have passed it. Uh, Apparently. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I went out to a vet's office and watched some surgeries, and I went to... Uh, uh, talked to another doctor there about some of that stuff. And to make a long story short, I got conditionally accepted to Michigan's med school if I could pass organic chemistry that summer. And chemistry had always been my weak point. So rather than going back to the Elkhorn for a fourth summer, I made the supreme sacrifice of going back to Michigan. And oh, spent, that would be. Yeah. Spent the summer... <clears throat> driving an hour and a half each way, five days a week to Ann Arbor to take organic chemistry. And I really wasn't good at chemistry at all. To me, it was like trying to memorize the Detroit telephone book or something. It was, uh, <laughs> all the, all the I never really understood it. And uh, anyhow, uh, all I had to do to, was get a C minus to pass and I got a C minus. So, <laughs> <laughs> so off I went to med school at Ann Arbor. And Ann Arbor is a, a college town, and uh, it's a it's a neat town, as, as Michigan towns go. There's a nice a lot of woods around, and a lot of good cultural things going on. Yeah, a lot, a lot of history. Yeah, that there's school. a lot, and uh, so uh, my third or fourth year of med school, I met Nancy. He, she. Uh, on a blind date, and right from the start, we clicked pretty darn well and uh, had fun. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, about Christmas time of my senior year, we got engaged and got married that summer. Just to, well, there are a lot of things I've skipped, but that's all right. Well, uh, well we can jump back and no, forth around, uh, shoot it the way you see it. Well, in the latter years of med school, it 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 was it was good. Uh, everything you learned, you knew you were going to be using, and it all sort of tied together. So really, uh, even the chemistry course, uh, I did okay in. Started clicking more when you yeah, got an application because it all came mm -hmm. together, and uh, it was interesting and fun and challenging. And uh, and my four years in Ann Arbor were surprisingly positive. Uh, especially, of course, because I met uh, Nancy. But uh, it was just a good experience. There. And was Nancy at, uh, at the school as well? Was she going to Ann Arbor? Or? Yeah, she was an undergrad school. She was uh, actually graduated as a dental hygienist. And I graduated as a MD. And uh, so we went off. We got married uh, two weeks after graduation. Went off to Traverse City, Michigan. Call you guys old-fashioned, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, went off to Traverse City, Michigan to intern, and she she worked for a dentist, and I worked for, uh, well, the hospital. And uh, that was a real good experience. Uh, it was very much oriented toward family practice, which is what I wanted to do. And at that time, Vietnam was heating up. And all male doctors who didn't have a serious medical issue were being drafted. So I went and volunteered early that year to get a better choice of where to go. And they had you ranking different parts of the world and different parts of the country as to where you'd be stationed. And um, we were newlyweds and... Uh, so I put Western Europe first because we thought it'd be fun to be there and go skiing. <laughs> and, and I put uh, Southeast Asia last. 
not as a political statement so much as just the fact that here I was a new newlywed and uh, we really didn't want to have me go off to Vietnam. Uh, so we got... That's a reasonable we got, concept. Uh, we got assigned to go to England and uh, we went, after a year of internship, we went in the Air Force, went to Alabama for two weeks to learn how to salute and how to and who to salute and all that. And uh, then we went to England. We got there and the base we were sent to, uh, when we got there, we walked in and they said they were closing it. And so told me about another base that was closer to London. So we spent three years uh, about 50 miles north of London living in a little, a little English village. We were the only Americans there. Golly, that and, sounds like uh, a pretty good... It was a great experience. We met a lot of nice people, and uh, we lived about 10 miles from the base. Compare that to Saigon, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was really good medical experience for me being at the base. There were about, oh, about 2,000 airmen there and about 1,000 dependents, uh, wives and kids. So it was just good family practice experience and uh, we couldn't put people in the hospital if they were that bad we had to send them to a, a bigger air force hospital but we had our first child there mary uh, born in london yeah and uh we had just a, a great experience there there's a there were four or five american air force bases in england still yeah southern england mm-hmm uh, some were bomber bases and some were fighter bases. And uh, the one we were stationed at was a security service intelligence base. There were no airplanes there. It was an old estate and a 14th century priory building was the officer's club. And uh, it was really a nice setting in rural England. But it was not a very... It was... It was a security service base where these airmen were mostly trained in various languages, and they were in a big building, and they were sitting there for their eight or twelve-hour shift, just electronic spying. Oh wow! And everything they find, found, or heard, there's another squadron that transmitted the data to Texas to Lackland Air for Force Base for analytics and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was all electronic eavesdropping. There was a, Sylvania had built a big antenna a mile around, three stories high, this structure. And um, it it was all hush-hush stuff. And uh, there was a lot of stress because the airmen were trial runs and pretend... uh, Things were being pulled on them all the time. Simulations. Simulations. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So there was a lot of uh, there. A lot of them were pretty uh, highly trained and uh, sort of very intelligent uh, people chosen to be put into that field. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But the base was had a little grocery store and uh, it was just a beautiful place. It sounds pretty cushy compared to a a lot what a lot of people ended up with that time. The third year I was there, I was the, stand up when you say this, the base commander. No, I was the dispensary commander, I mean. Uh, You really (laughs) worked your way up the ladder, huh? Age 28 or so. (laughs) And so I had to be the, I was the doc who'd been there the longest, so I was the boss of it. So they made us move to the base instead of being in the little village. But that was okay because Mary was born then and... uh, we had a washer and dryer, and uh, it's better for the diapers <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be in the base. Back in those days. But we had a great experience there. And uh, and, and so um, you got done with your military service. And well, then I, I, uh, I, wa- I, wa- I felt I needed more training. Uh, the military was great in terms of out, outpatient office practice. But it, I was completely away from serious illnesses, heart trouble, delivering babies, uh, you know, really more the types of things you'd get in a regular internship in Michigan. So 
I decided that I wanted to do another year of residency training to catch up on all that stuff. I wouldn't have had to do it to get a license, but I, I really felt I should get back into the swing of things. Oh, so we wanted to be in the West, and we there are only two places in the Mountain West that had residencies for that were Los Alamos, New Mexico, and Denver. So we applied to both. We couldn't go visit them, of course, because we're in England at this time. We applied to both, and we got into both, but we decided to go to Los Alamos. Uh, I'd been to Denver. I'd spent a summer there when I was in med school, and uh, I didn't want to be in a big city, and we liked the Southwest, so we went to Los Alamos. And at that point, Los Alamos had opened up the gates, and it wasn't all hush-hush anymore. Oh, yeah, as far as the nuclear yeah. development. But it had that. a very excellent <clears throat> staff of doctors who had been recruited from Washington University in St. Louis to be there during World War II. And most all of them had stayed on. And from so, the Manhattan, Manhattan yes, Project? Yeah. yeah, so they were very high-caliber doctors there, and— uh, it was a residency year. Uh, the, the second year would have been surgery, and I didn't want to be a surgeon. I just wanted to be a family doctor. So I just did the one year, and it was good. I was the only resident, so anytime anything interesting was in the whole hospital, I got to see it or be got involved in with it. Yeah. And in June of that year, we came. We went on a big trip up and down the Rockies with Mary and Nancy, uh, up to Kalispell, Montana, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Bend, Oregon, and Bozeman, and uh, Glenwood Springs. A bunch of awesome places. Look, all looking over. at places to practice. And uh, on the way back, uh, we'd done this big loop, and uh, Flagstaff was the last place we were going to visit. And we got to Flagstaff and uh, stopped at uh, what's now Bash's, up the hill, and uh, for the first and only time on the trip, I just walked in, talked to the pharmacist, and said, well, I'm a, a family practice resident from New Mexico and uh, going to be done in a few months, and everyone, do you need doctors here? And uh, the uh, Paul Armstrong, the pharmacist, was there, <laughs> and he said, yeah, actually, so-and-so is going to do this, and so-and-so is doing that. The pharmacist and, would know everything, wouldn't they? Yeah, and uh, he said, uh, why don't you go up and talk to George Yard and Tom Matlock and see if they, I think they might need some help. And so to make a long story short, I did, we did, and uh, they were very encouraging. And they said, why don't you come back in a couple of weeks and we'll get to know you better and show you around and this and that. So we did, and they did, and uh, just in a handshake agreement, we said, yeah, we'll, we'll come in October and uh, like to, to share the office with you. And they were wonderful. They, uh, they made it real easy for me. They got me a half-time job at Northern Arizona University in the health center for the first year to give me some regular income, and they uh, told me, how to get everything set up and arranged and let me borrow their equipment. and Good Flagstaff folk right there. Let me, they let me buy into things later, and we were friends forever and still are with George Yard, so, who just turned 90. Yeah, just in a, that was a good little hoedown when that yes. fellow George. And anyhow, that's it in a nutshell. It was, uh, we've loved living here. We wanted to be in a medium-sized town with uh, mountains and a ski area and a, preferably a university, just because it brings so many interesting people to town. That's an interesting thing, you know, how uh, Flagstaff, those old days, like being a doctor's son or a fa family of a doctor and stuff, that, that was a remarkable medical community back then, wasn't it? It really was. We all kind of helped each other and uh, tried to cooperate. And uh, there were only 18 or 20 doctors when, when I came. If you needed help, uh, there was always somebody there who'd, who'd come. And uh, I mean, we've loved living here. Uh, it's it's just a friendly, good place with... Uh, well, you know, uh, for the listeners, uh, Walt's been my doctor since I was a kid. And uh, 
Uh, oh, my father left, uh, departed from Flagstaff when I was just like seven or eight years old. But anyway, when Walt came to town, he was our family doctor. And uh, I would imagine you put more stitches in me than, you know, Spalding puts in footballs. Quite a few stitches. And you fixed me in all different kinds of ways. But uh, when it was totally uh, inappropriate to injure yourself the way we would injure ourselves, I would have to say I was really lucky, Walt, to have you as a, a non-judgmental uh, physician, a discreet <laughs> doctor to have through my childhood. But one of the uh, more remarkable, we've, we shared some pretty crazy stuff in regards to your medical practice. Uh, one of them was way back in the day before it was very fashionable for a boy in Flagstaff to have a pierced ear. I decided, I want a pierced ear, you know, be hip, be ahead of the rest of them here in Flagstaff. And so Walt pierced my ear for me. And uh, that was a, I'll never forget that day when you uh, shot that needle through my ear. And <laughs> we had a little post to put in there and some antiseptic and stuff. But the other thing I remember uh, you helping me with, I had a dog, Mad Cat, who yeah. she was with me for 14 or 15 years. And, oh, she... <laughs> became diabetic, she had arthritis, she was blind, and she got really just not happy. And so it was one of those deals It was kinder to put her down. And Walt and I drove down to our property and outside of Sedona in Oak Creek, and <laughs> Mad Cat got out of the truck, and I started digging the hole, and she came over and laid next to the hole, uh, so I could size it up, I suppose. But it was a tremendously emotional thing to go through for me. But Walt uh, gave her the injection and wrote, wrote it out with me until she quit breathing and we put her in the hole. But that was a remarkably kind and uh, sensitive and, and tender moment. I, I just thought I'd mention it on the show here because... You're a good man, Hal. Well, I want to straighten this out a little bit. <laughs> First of all, uh, I'd do anything for Brian, and I know he would do anything for me. It's just been that way since we got to know each other. <clears throat> but uh, he's being kind. When Brian called me and asked me if I'd help him with this, I called around to one of the anesthesia guys and asked them what what I should get, what medicine I should get, and they told me. So I went and got it. We got in the truck and we got down there, and everything went like Brian was saying, except we uh, tried to do it, and it didn't work. Uh, I didn't get it in the vein enough, and Matt Cat was coming around and this and that. So we got in the car and drove to a vet in Sedona, <laughs> You may have, yeah, yeah. You were be, you're being kind. I, I, this I was not one of my greatest uh, <laughs> achievements. We've, we found a vet in Sedona who did it, and I'm sure Brian had finished her office. Right? <laughs> then we took him back. Then we took Matt Kent back him. and buried her. And so it, our, our our friendship survived it. Oh but, no, uh, it was a, it was a. Uh, Anyhow, emotional time. It was one of those things, and uh, <laughs> it's uh, not something I was real proud of, but I was honored that Brian would ask me to help. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, with this building friendship we've always had, let's let's go ahead and hop on down into the river. What year was it? It was that May trip. 1975. It was 1975. We did a trip— uh, Talk a little bit about that trip from your perspective. Well, uh, I'll be when we first got to town at some gathering we were at, I met a guy named Dick McCallum, and it turned out that he's a school counselor and all, but he also had a river company where he specialized in taking kids on the river trips in the Grand Canyon. And Brian had grown up uh, being part of that world. And uh, you were uh, 
when I met you, really got to know you, you were uh, it just finished your first year at University of Arizona. Yeah. Anyhow, we, uh, I, I, so, th- so this is pretty exciting, these river trips this guy was telling me about. A few years later, we and some other couples hiked down to Phantom Ranch and stayed overnight and hiked back out the next day. And while we were down there, a river trip came by and all these people whooping and hollering and having a great time uh, while we're down there by the river. And I said, boy, I want to do that. Uh, So things went along and I got to know various people. And so we decided to round up a a, a trip of our own, uh, a charter group, and we did it through Dick McCallum's company, and Brian was working for him. So we went on a 12-day Grand Canyon trip from Lee's Ferry to Diamond Creek with uh, friends. Some of them were from the Elkhorn Ranch and other friends that we'd known uh, here or in uh Growing up, my mother went on the trip. She was about 68 years old at the time, and she just loved it. It was the high point of the latter part of her life because she died in two years later. We just had a wonderful yeah, it was experience. A fan. I still remember all kinds of details about yep. that trip. Brian helped get my mother up to Elves Chasm to <laughs> see uh, that. Yeah. And <laughs> she wasn't very healthy. She'd been a lifelong heavy smoker and all that, and... Uh, she and another lady, Mary Wortman, would sit in the back of Brian's boat. He was rowing a big snout rig, and uh, they'd be puffing away in their cigarettes and <laughs> looked like it was something going down the Mississippi River or something. <laughs> no, they were, they were wonderful, those gals. They fell in love with Brian, and Brian fell in love with them. Absolutely. And uh, we had a, a wonderful trip. Uh, it was just uh, everything we could have dreamed of, and it was there are a couple, a uh, couple of interesting things in in regards to uh, the that trip uh, back to Bob Miller, the cowboy. He was on the trip. With he his was wife. on the trip, and and it was all his people, Walt and his friends and people. They these are cowboys, and uh, a fairly good little bunch of them were, you know, cowboys and their wives. And when they got to Lee's Ferry, uh, it took them a little back uh, to size <laughs> us up as far as the, we're in running shorts and nothing else with long hair and beads. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, they kind of had a little conference uh, there at the put-in as to whether they really were going to go downriver with us. But <laughs> we all became fantastic friends. But one little ditty, uh, the first night, everything's great. We... We pulled in on the left side at 18-mile wash, which is a pretty hot eddy. We all got in there, and it, it's easy enough to catch the eddy, and there was a nice little sand slough there, and everybody camped, and we had a nice dinner, and it was going to be a great trip. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, I feel this hand on my foot. I'm, I'm sleeping up on shore, and it's Bob, and he goes, Hey, Brian, I just thought you ought to know. Your boat's loose. <laughs> and, and to a boatman to hear that is like you're like a sprung coil. And sure enough, I look out and this is a hot eddy. And my snout boat <laughs> is just catching the middle river current, which is right there, and getting ready to just zoom on downstream. <laughs> and we it's only a two or three boat trip, wasn't it? It was, it was like, three green rivers tied together. Yeah, oh, it's a triple rig and then my boat. And then your boat. And so I'm up running for shore, but I realize I'm losing my boat. And then right as I get to shore, the three bow lines tied end to end that Bob had set it up to where he tied these bow lines to where there was a bunch of play in the bow line. And so he pushed the boat out and used this as a joke. And I thought, you know, Bob, he's an older guy by then already, and he's a short, little, fat, bald cowboy. (laughs) And uh, I was going to kill him at (laughs) 4 o'clock in the morning. And he's just laughing. I think uh, Workman was up with us, and everybody's (laughs) laughing at me. And I finally just went, 
Oh my God. He goes, come on, let's put on some coffee, Brian. You know, he's just getting started with his day and he was already having a ball at my expense. Oh my God. Well, we had a, we had a wonderful trip and I just, uh, it was a, a whole new world for us then. And you know, another thing that happened that trip was it got cold. It was yes, one of those sucker punch Mays. And yeah. you remember we built a fire at lunch just to get we, everybody warm up. We got to the little Colorado and, and uh, had some, some antifreeze put in. <laughs> yeah. I remember Bob's, you know, those round canteens with the, with the, uh, Wool, yeah, side side walls on them. Yeah, he had a couple of those filled with whiskey, and those came <laughs> out. And, no, that was that was great. And then, as as uh, after that trip, you one thing that has been a remarkable contribution uh, that you've given the community, Walt, is you know you really became a part of the river community in in Spades, but. Uh, for the listener, uh, nobody has ever taken care of more dirtbag boatmen than Walt Taylor. And all of us had one problem or another. It's an active lifestyle. So, of course, there's injuries and rashes and lacerations, contusions, fractures, you name it. Well, there's a lot of wonderful folks and uh, just, uh, just the river community's been a wonderful part of our life and uh, in many, many ways. And uh, what, was, what was the first year, Walt, that we had you on a baggage boat? Okay, well... Uh, How'd that all go? I... 75 was that first trip. And then we did a lot of hiking in the canyon after that and got to know more people in the sort of river community. And uh, I, I met uh, Rob Elliott, who is a Second generation, long time Grand Canyon River family. And his company used to put on what they called diplomat trips. And they had a contract with some outfit in New York to put together trips with American business people and foreign diplomats. And it was to increase international understanding and this and that. And uh, they always take a doctor along because some of the people were older and had trouble and this and that. So I got to go on that. And I remember coming to Brian's ski shop. It was a different place than it is now at the time. But And telling him about it, I was so excited that I'd been on this trip. And uh, Brian said, well, we ought to get you on a baggage boat. And I sort of gulped and, who, who me? I couldn't do that. Uh, well, Brian, being Brian, said, yes, you can. You can do it, and uh, we'll have fun. And so I gulped and said yes, and he arranged it uh, through Dick McCallum's company. And uh, it was pretty gutsy, what I think now, that I took Mary with me, her our oldest kid. Innocent daughter. Yeah, on my first trip rowing. And Colette, we had a French exchange student who was living with us, and she went along. That's right. I so I'm that. rowing a baggage boat with Mary and Colette. <laughs> and uh, Brian was uh, always got a kick out of the fact that I said, well, I'm not going to be the first one through the rapid, and I don't want to be the last one. Well, that was the I, rule. Never be first, never be last. I wanted the security blanket of being in the middle. <laughs> and uh, uh, for whatever successes I had doing it, it was because I was associated with and following closely good people. <laughs> people like Brian and, and Dan and Dougal uh, Bremner. No, you, and, did, you did quite a few specialty trips, too. You and I did another kind of VIP trip. Yes. And just the thing I remember most about that was I was fishing uh, with a, a lure off the boat. And I had a real, uh, actually, I think it was Steve Carruthers' pull. And I went to cast and it, and I looked back and I had hooked Carruthers yeah. right in the back of the head with this uh, lure. Yeah. You know, fairly good-sized lure, treble <laughs> hook. And remember, it started raining. We had to stick his head in that little cave, and, <laughs> and you had to get this, yeah. <laughs> the tr 
treble hook out of the back of his head. But you also did a... I did a total of... of uh, I counted up because I knew I was going to come here today. Uh, about 12 trips. Some of them were half trips. Some of the diplomat trips were just the upper half. Well, you add that hike into a half trip, it's a whole trip. Yeah. Anyway, and then I did the old timers trip that you were on. And that, that was That was in 94. That was, a, that was a trip that I really uh, uh, look back on fondly, and, and I think it was an honor for both of us to be on that trip. Uh, it was. And you are, you are our team doctor, and uh, uh, we had Walt and I on the motorboat when he was on it. We had over a thousand years worth of people sitting really? on the boat. Yeah, uh, we had all these big time names: uh, the, the Rig Boys, Jotter, uh, yeah, Lois Jotter, Armstrong. We all fell in love with Lois Jotter. She was the neatest lady. She is a fine woman. Yeah, and, uh, and the list goes on. Yeah, uh, that's right. And I was with in Martin Litton's boat, and that was a great. Experience. That's right. Martin was there riding Martin a Litton. boat. That was a hell of a trip. And Brian took me through upset. Uh, he was on, what do you call that kind of boat that oh, you're on? Oh, a cataract style. Cataract one of the style. Nevels boats, yeah. So I'm lying across the front of it. That's right. Uh, and Brian took me through Nevels of that. And man, that was so exciting. Through upset, yeah. Or upset, uh, not Nevels. That yeah. was pretty exciting was little boat to ride. Those, yeah. those, those are strange, strange design. Yeah. No, it was... Uh, that was a wonderful experience to be on that trip. Those, uh, those were some fantastic trips. And then, yeah. uh, Walt, are you interested in doing another trip sometime? Oh, I'd, I'd love to, yeah. Well, we may have to work that out soon. Yeah, I'd love to. It. Uh, we The last time we were down there was in 2013. Mary had a private, and it was a motor trip. And it was great. We had a great time. I'd never done a motor trip the whole way before. And uh, it was great. The canyon's wonderful. Uh, it's, it's a great way to see the canyon. It and, is. And it's t less time, but you've got all the amenities and ice. Yeah. No, I loved it, though. I I sat right in the front the whole time and just ate the way. Took it like a man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, there's another thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, you, uh, with your interest and dedication to this community, have, have uh, taken up Tasks, whether it's the Whale Foundation or the Grand Canyon Youth, you've always been a supporter of the community. Uh, but you also took on uh, the interesting task of figuring out Tolio. And you and Tom Meyer, I believe, did a, a real uh, extensive look into why. And Tolio, for you guys listening, is. Uh, it's this rash that uh, boatmen down there after uh, five or six trips on the river, they we started seeing this rash, kind of kind of like athlete's foot in between the toes and stuff like that. And sometimes it got real bad for some people this this condition. But uh, tell us a little bit about your Tolio adventure. Um, well, there was a lot of controversy about it, and there's still questions as to. What's, what it's caused by, but um, I did, uh, we, we developed a questionnaire for Boatman to fill out and got a lot of history on where, where on the trip it showed up and what was, just tried to learn more about it. And we actually uh, published our results in the, the Boatman's quarterly journal. And uh, then it got a little more big time, um, the county health department people got involved a little bit. And um, actually, Tom Myers, who's a, a, an internal medicine physician who's worked in the Grand Canyon and Williams, Arizona, and he's become sort of a real expert on a lot of medical things in the canyon. He, uh, he actually got it published in a dermatology journal. And I guess my name's on the list of people who are part of that. He I ran into him just a few days ago, or a few weeks ago, uh, out in the woods, and he said he was going to send me a copy of it, and I hope he will. Uh, but he he took it a lot further than I had, and learned a lot more, and they got more scientific. Uh, I just my part was more 
getting people's information and having them becoming conscious of certain common sense things to do to try to minimize it, et cetera. It's right. still kind of a controversial thing. Some people think it's a fungus and some people think it's due to the uh, cold water and some people think it's due to various things in the water and uh, you, you can get a good discussion going. Uh, uh, I've always it. thought it's because people have bad thoughts and their toes start getting rotten like that. Well, you never know. And uh, if anybody's uh, the epitome of that, well... <laughs> it would be me. That's why yeah. I got it. No, I, uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Whale Foundation because that was something that was very... Uh, uh, a big part of my life for a while. A uh, whale was a beloved uh, boatman who had his demons. Brian knew knew him very well. I d- didn't know him that well, but had his demons for various reasons and ended up taking his own life. And uh, soon after that happened, uh, some other people in the medical community, I wasn't involved with it at that point, but some other people developed a the idea for a organization to try to help boatmen as they uh, deal with life and there's a lot of things about being a boatman in the Grand Canyon that people don't realize and as a passenger you you worship your boatman and they're these Greek gods who take care of you and you think they're wonderful and they are wonderful. Or you hate them. (laughs) And they are wonderful. Uh, But they're mere mortals like the rest of us. When they have their issues and their problems, and one of the things is as they get older, then they may have have spent 20 years, 40 years uh, having this very glamorous, wonderful job, but then what are you left with at the end of that? when you're 45 years old and have a bad back. So there are a lot of issues that could come up where we thought it would be good to try to help the guides and the whole river community. And uh, so I got involved with that on the board and that was very fulfilling. And we uh, worked with a lot of really good people and tried to tried to work with some of those issues. And well, There were some great strides made with yeah. your involvement. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, it was it was very gratifying to be part of it. You know, it, and uh, in so many ways, I wish we had a couple more hours. But I do have a kind of a a sobering question for you in regards to our natural world and our natural resources and stuff. They've been taking a hit, uh, whether it's current state of affairs with uh, the global population or whether it's this poor country's leadership that we have right now or the the actually somebody removing protections from some of these uh, large pieces of protected Western land and stuff. But are we going to be all right? Will that pendulum swing back towards the environmentalist, towards the environment? Walter, what do you see? You've seen a lot in your life. Well, um, I don't know how political uh, (laughs) you want me to be. No, just speak freely. (laughs) Well, I think I'm very uh, concerned about it. I got a a yearly or semi-yearly magazine for the Grand Canyon Trust just a day or two ago, and they're talking about the uranium mining up by the canyon, which, to my way of thinking, can't help but get into the water that's flowing through the canyon. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Everybody <laughs> uh, can figure that one out. Uh, between that mm. and the uh, fact that indigenous people are being not treated with respect in terms of things like, you know, uh, up in Utah, some of the land things going on. I, I'm... Uh, I, I I like to think of myself as an environmentalist, but I like to think of myself as somebody who uses common sense and isn't trying to just say you can't do this, you can't do that. I think I think uh, I think you've got to try to communicate and be fair and be honest. And we have a wonderful. I love living where we do. 
But I'll have to confess, I, you know, there's some areas that are being, uh, well, the current administration in Washington is, is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's a disappointment. It's a disappointment. When, when he got elected, I hoped that he would then uh, say, okay, I got elected, this and that. But he's just gotten worse by the month, by the day. Uh, it's, it's, it's very distressing. But, uh, uh, but and, the, and I just want to say this. He's a terrible role model for our young people. I hate to see our kids, our 10 and 15 and 20-year-olds, growing up thinking this is a cool way to be. The, devi- the divisiveness of his tone and all that is such a, such a uh, destructive element. I sure appreciate you, you taking the time, uh, Walt, sit down with me. I'd like to do this again sometime down the line and talk about a few other things. But, uh, Let me have the, the mic for two, mo- two more minutes to just say this. Yeah. I want to officially tell you what a wonderful part of our whole family's life you and your family has been. Our, our son John grew up going to what I call Humphrey Summit University, <laughs> which is Brian's Ski Shop. And John and a lot of other young people in this town, mostly young men, but some young women too, have worked at Humphrey Summit in their teenage years. And uh, Brian has given them responsibilities, and uh, he's been a wonderful part of their life. And uh, even the fact that he got me into doing those baggage boat trips in the canyon and getting getting to uh, row through the canyon several times. Uh, that's been a huge part of my life and something I've always, will always look back on as just a wonderful, a wonderful uh, episode of my life. And uh, Brian gets the credit for a lot of that. And he's, he's been a lot, meant a lot to a lot of people. And uh, he's, He's kind of a, a treasure here in this this area. So, uh, oh shucks, Walt. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And for if those he wasn't words. giving me eighteen, <laughs> or if he wasn't paying me ten thousand dollars for doing this, I'd tell you even more. Well, and I, I wanted to mention about that ten grand, Walt. That I'm waiting for that government, uh, that little bump from the government oh, okay. for, because of the virus. I, it, it, it's coming. Okay. It's coming. Good. But uh, I, I, always great to see you and, and vice versa. I mean, uh, we've had a rich friendship and the people around us that we've gotten to share each other's uh, love of family and community and stuff like that. We've, we've had a good run, you and me, Walt. And I thank you so much for being here. Uh, big adventures with Walt Taylor and Brian Durker. So you guys stay right side up and keep your bottom down. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bookner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.